of your son, Jesus Christ. And God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, team. Thank you, too. As uh, Dr. Patch on Wednesday did said, thank you to all of our teams. and uh, did a beautiful job. And I just think it's important. I've been meaning to say thank you to uh, the student body. I want to say it this day, since we have the trustees here, I just want to say thank you for the genuine reverence and respect you continually demonstrate uh, in chapel. Uh, when speakers come, it may not be a topic or an interest or a field of interest to you, uh, but it is to others, and um, you continually demonstrate that, and I thank you. And so maybe Wednesday's chapel, for example, you don't feel the Lord calling you to missions, uh, but some people have spoken to me already since Dr. Patch's uh, message on Wednesday that they do believe God was speaking to them in chapel on Wednesday, and your reverence and respect allows that to uh, create an environment for that, so thank you. Today we're privileged to have a, a renowned scholar with us, uh, Dr. Elaine Howard Eklund, joined the Rice University Sociology faculty in the fall of 2008, where she is also Associate Director of the Center on Race, Religion, and Urban Life. Her research topics are in the areas of religion, immigration, science, and civic life. Eklund is currently directing three national research projects, the Religious Immigrant Civic Engagement Study, funded by the Russell Sage Foundation, examines changes to civil society as a result of recent immigration to the U.S. The other, Religion Among Academic Scientists, is a national study on religion and spirituality among scientists at elite research universities, the first study in over 20 years to systematically gather data on this topic. The third examines the experiences of women in academic biology and physics and is funded by the National Science Foundation. Eklund's work has appeared in numerous scholarly outlets, including the Annual Review of Sociology, Social Forces, and American Behavioral Science. Elaine Howard Eklund's first book, Korean American Evangelicals, New Models for Civic Life, was published by Oxford University, and she has a book coming out just this month, uh, which I think she'll tell you more about. I want to thank Dr. Guyberson for uh, allowing Dr. Eklund to be with us today. He scheduled her for some events later this afternoon, some forums I think you'll be a part of. And, um, but one thing, two things that I really want to highlight. One, her and her husband, who is a physicist, I believe, also at Rice University, are active members of their local church. And she has a six-month-old daughter, Annika, who she actually brings with her and travels with her, and it's, uh, which has been more exhausting and draining than she ever imagined. But uh, it's her first child, and she's learning. Uh, but uh, she's a wonderful example of uh, pursuing a call and career in academia and yet still uh, fulfilling the role of family and life. And she said if there are any uh, female students who would like to talk to her more about that, and if I read correctly, you've even done some research on the topic or written about it, so you could speak to her about that. Will you please welcome this morning Dr. Elaine Howard Eckman. Let me just say a, a brief uh, prayer for, um, over my remarks this morning. God, I, I do want to lift uh, these words to you. Thank you for this opportunity, and I pray that the words of my mouth might be pleasing to you, Lord. I also want you to know that I am from upstate New York. I, um, I sense that we have some people from upstate New York here as well. Um, I was actually raised in Trumansburg, New York on a road called Podunk Road, if you can believe it. So um, Reverend McPherson sort of emphasized some scholarly achievements, uh, but this really, I'm from Podunk Road. So um, I was 
I was at a church a few years ago, and I started a conversation with a woman who just joined the church. And in a university town, actually near I was raised, near Cornell University, uh, the woman remarked that she sure hoped that her children would not go to Cornell because there were a lot of scientists there who might take her children away from the faith. She wouldn't want to risk exposing them to science. Was this woman right? Is science too risky for the person of faith? What do scientists at the nation's top universities really think about faith? And what do their views mean to you as students at ENC, a university that has as a core part of its mission to bridge the best in education with the very best in Christian thinking with a life of faith? That's where I started my study and what I've been sort of thinking about for the past five years. Americans have what I would call a kind of love-hate relationship with science. Uh, according to some recent polling data, about 90% of Americans express interest in new scientific discoveries, uh, things like immunizations and new forms of immunizations to protect our children. We certainly want cures for cancer, and sometimes even saying the simple phrase, scientific studies show, is enough to kind of uh, gain credence for your idea. Yet the public also appears at times to find science kind of risky, right? to be afraid of science or even to dislike science. These same polls show that 50% of Americans think we depend too much on science and not enough on faith, and about 25% think that scientists are downright hostile to religion. And these public conceptions would appear to be right at some level, right? So um, we do simply find scientists who confirm this prevalent belief. You need only open the page of a major national newspaper like the New York Times and find someone like Richard Dawkins, right, author of The God Delusion, who said recently that religious beliefs are irrational. Religious beliefs are dumb and dumber, super dumb, as if to underscore his point. Religion drives otherwise sensible people into celibate monasteries or crashing into New York skyscrapers. So what is a thinking Christian student like yourself to do in the midst of such controversies, such unthinking stereotypes about people of faith and what they're about, about their ideas? Should a Christian who wants to serve God even go into science? How should Christians view science? And I think how should Christians view other controversial arenas for that matter? For the past five years, I've been studying this, and I've done a survey of about 1,700 scientists and in-depth interviews um, with about 300 of them. And several key themes have emerged from my research that I think viewed alongside our reading of Scripture may help us figure out some of the answers to these questions and which have some implications for how, as Christians, we might engage in science and other forms of risk that might actually be helpful in strengthening for our faith. Several um, passages, I know when you know, we have life experiences sometimes and God speaks to us, kind of words of scripture that um, come up and impact us. And several passages came to mind as I was doing my research. And I want to share one to you, with you that was particularly powerful for me. Um, from Matthew 14, where the disciples, to kind of set the context, are in stormy water. They're afraid. And you remember this passage, Jesus appears right in the water. And Peter, who is known as a disciple who experiences some fear and anxiety and has a kind of troubled past, someone who cares about what other people think about him, sees Jesus across the water, and Peter decides to step out of the boat. The scripture says that Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. Out of character, 
Peter took a profound risk and walked toward Jesus. And what are several forms of risk that we might take as Christians? One I want to talk about is the risk of listening to stories of non-belief. As Christians who think about science, we tend to focus extensively on ways of making faith compatible with science, convincing people to believe. And I think that is very important work, and I really want to affirm that. But sometimes it's, it's just as useful to understand, and even for those of you who care nothing about science, I think this is instructive, to listen carefully to the reasons that people do not believe and what might be really behind those reasons. Part of what I did in my research was actually spend two years just listening to, sto- to scientists' deconversion stories, the reasons that they don't believe. And in my role as a researcher, um, I was actually kind of muzzled, so I couldn't, uh, you know, give them back, you know, things or reasons that they should believe, even though I wanted to at times, I had to just sit there and really listen. And that had a really profound uh, impact on me as a person. I found that over 50% of scientists do not have any form of religious identity, and about 30% of them are committed atheists. But I also found out some of the surprising reasons that they don't believe, and I think will instruct us. When I really listened, I found that only a small small proportion reject faith because they found out more about science. A much larger proportion rejected faith because they were told simply not to ask difficult questions of faith. For example, Evelyn, a biologist I interviewed, told me that when I asked hard questions, I was told just to make a decision to believe. My experiences with religion was that it was a way that judgment was passed on people who are different. She told me that when she asked hard questions, she was told by her religious leaders, just make a decision to believe. Romans 12.12 says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I think that part of this transformation of our mind involves really listening to the reasons for our own doubt, for others' doubt, and not being afraid of those reasons, but letting God into them. Think about how different Evelyn's life would have been if she had been encouraged instead by her religious leaders, as I'm sure you are at a place like ENC, an institution of higher education, to really think through in a community of faith the reasons for her doubt and to come through on the other side stronger. Think how differently her life would have been, what kind of impact she could have had in the world of science. I think we need to not be afraid of the hardest questions and that this, a place like ENC, is a very special, a very ordained kind of opportunity to wrestle through in your classrooms with the deepest and hardest questions that you might have. Second, I think as Christians, like Peter took that risk to get out of the boat, this study taught me that we need to risk entering into environments of non-belief. A much larger proportion of the scientists that I studied um, than when compared to people in the general public who are not scientists were raised without any religious tradition. And scientists who were raised with a tradition were uh, tended to be raised in tradition that um, where faith was not strongly practiced, where they didn't say go to church every Sunday, compared to other Americans where 40% were raised in homes where they attended once per week. 
Many scientists and other groups of people that I'm sure you encounter in your day-to-day lives have little exposure to faith or have only thinly veiled stereotypes about faith, right? We encounter those. This means that their only idea about people of faith may be what journalists put on the front page of the New York Times. When this finding emerged in my research, it, it brought me to another verse, which has come up in my life over and over again from 1 Peter, which says, But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. And I started thinking about the implications for what I was finding set alongside of Scripture. And what would it mean as Christians to enter into environments where people have very little exposure to Christianity, or even worse, where people have hard and fast stereotypes, where they're hostile, and to give a reason for the hope that is within us by dispelling these stereotypes um, that those who have no exposure to faith, to real faith, to genuine faithful living might have. My mind comes back to Evelyn in the second part of her quote, which she said that religion was a way that judgment was passed on people who are different. You here at ENC, which is an incredibly diverse campus, have an opportunity to model diversity, to model justice in your environment, in an urban, you're a diverse campus in an urban environment. What an opportunity to model to the world around you about what it means to live as Christians in that kind of diversity, to live with respect, to live with gentleness, to ask hard questions. See this as an opportunity, folks, to model something different and unique in your environment, to dispel stereotypes. Even by the way that we live, we can constantly be going around and dispelling stereotypes and knocking them down. Once people actually know a Christian living in a way that is different, they just can't have those stereotypes anymore. They just cannot have them. The third kind of risk I want to talk about is the risk of integrating our work with our life of faith. And in my particular research, I was interested in how scientists do this or do not do this. But perhaps my most troubling finding um, with the greatest implications for for Christian communities in general, was finding that many of the scientists who are people of faith, particularly those um, who were Protestants or Catholics, actually practice what I came to call a secret spirituality within their scientific environment. They were people of faith. They would tell me that they were people of faith behind closed doors, but no one would actually know in their work environment. According to Janice, a physicist I talked to who sees herself as a practicing Christian, She thinks that universities are not very accepting environments. She said it's really hard to be a scientist and be a person of faith because the public opinion is that you either have to choose to be a scientist or to be a person of faith. So she chooses simply to remain silent about her faith at work. She practices within the scientific community what she has come and I have come to call a sort of secret spirituality. That might be okay for her work, but the cost as a person of faith is that other scientists do not know that she is a person of faith. They do not know that she is someone who they could actually learn from about how to reconcile aspects of science within faith. And I'm not saying that I'm so great at this. This um, research of mine was very humbling to me and made me think about what are areas of my life where I practice a secret spirituality, where I need to be honest um, with others about where I am and where I am in issues of faith that I need to raise probing questions. I think these findings ought to be a kind of rallying cry for a place like Eastern Nazarene, 
Most of the places where I interviewed scientists were universities and colleges where it's not really acceptable to talk about the possible intersections between faith and science or just faith and work life in general um, in the classroom where there are many faculty who actually suppress such discussions. But you have the unique opportunity here, I think, to do something profound on that level. You have an opportunity within your science classrooms and within other types of classrooms to do something even revolutionary, to see this as sort of laboratory where all of you, not only um, people who are interested in science, but all of you work out the most difficult questions about faith and areas of work life. So what would it mean to be a person of faith in the business world? What would it mean to be a person of faith if you're going to go into social work? What would it mean to be um, a person of faith in all areas of life if you're going into the pastorate to encourage people in your congregations to live out their faith fully in areas of their work life? What would that really mean? You have this unique opportunity to be a sort of lab for that kind of thinking here where you have as a mission to have the best of the intellect alongside um, the best of the life of faith. Ask this of your professors. Put them on the spot. Ask them how they work out these kinds of issues and encourage them in these sorts of discussions in the classroom. Ask this of trusted Christian mentors and purpose now to leave here with a sense of how you're going to meet that calling in your area of your work life, whatever that may be. I'm sort of interested in science as my thing. You may or may not be interested in that, but take this a message to purpose to find that out for whatever your particular calling is. And last, be open to the risk of searching here and throughout your life to be truly open to God's calling. I want to bring up to you the scientists in my study who are committed people of faith, who are Christians. For these folks, being a scientist has not pushed them away from the faith, but only made them understand more deeply the call of God on their life, as well as the wonders and the mysteries of creation. It has made them stronger believers, not weaker believers. Are there some of you here who are called into the world of science or the academic world? What would it mean to see this as a possibility? Could you ministry be entering this world and getting a PhD or getting a degree in medicine, going to graduate school in physics or chemistry or the social sciences? I want to introduce you to uh, Bob Fay, a, a chemist friend of mine, um, actually uh, somewhat of a mentor of mine. Um, he had a, a profound spiritual experience, actually, at Wheaton College, a place not unlike ENC, also a confessing Christian institution of higher education where he pursued biblical studies. What may appear odd to some, he actually learned at Wheaton and discovered that his calling was not to pastoral ministry or overseas missions, although those are very good things and very worthy callings. Rather, his calling was into chemistry and into university teaching, where he has had many, many, many spiritual children over the years, myself included. He likes to tell people that it was a risky decision to follow Christ's call into chemistry, but that taking that risk has really made all the difference. I want to bring that verse up again. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came to Jesus. If you, if you read further, you find out that when he looked away from Jesus, then he sunk into the water. But when he was looking at Jesus, he was walking on the water. And out of character, Peter took a profound risk, walk toward Jesus. And I want to leave you with this question today. What would it mean to take a risk with your calling, to open up the possibilities that God might have for your life, 
to really open yourself up to take a risk. Thank you. Please stand. Dr. Eklund will be with us all day, so uh, in afternoon forums as well, and uh, so you'll have an opportunity to speak with her. Allow me to pray for you. Gracious Heavenly Father, may we be so bold to uh, live out a life of faith wherever you may be calling us, whatever field, whatever area of study, and may we be faithful in doing so. Uh, as we go our several ways this weekend, watch over and protect us, bring us back safely together on Monday, and may we glorify you in all that we do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You are dismissed. Have a great weekend.